Good morning. One more time. Good morning. Good morning and good to see you all. We continue this morning in our new series of studies in the book of Acts. You can turn with me to Acts chapter 1. After what was a pretty lengthy introduction last week to get us started on a study which will no doubt take us through this year and into next, uh, we can now really just sort of jump right in. And today we're going to see that Jesus had made a promise, and the promise was that his disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means, and then we're going to see that then Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. It's about 10 days later that they received the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that next week. Actually, not next week, in two weeks. Uh, But this morning, I want us to stop and think about, and we're going to hope to answer this question for you. I want us to think about what it really means to share the testimony of Jesus. What does that mean, the testimony of Jesus? You see, we see in the book of Acts that we're witnesses. And this book is all about the church of Jesus Christ. And this really is our blueprint or final instructions from Jesus as to what it is we're supposed to do as a church. I think it's sad that many times churches are confused about what the mission of a church is. I've seen some vision statements Uh, And I think you need to have a mission statement as a church. I think you need to have a vision. I do. But it really shouldn't deviate too far from the book of Acts. And so what we're going to see today is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is is essential for us to follow Jesus' instructions to the letter. To be able to do exactly what God has called us to do as a church. And as we prepare our hearts to receive this message, let's pray and ask the Lord to just take all of that praise and worship and fellowship time that we've experienced and now use it to prepare our hearts to be open to his word. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we look to you now. We thank you. What a wonderful time of praise and then fellowship and how important these things are. Really essential to the body of Christ, but also and most especially the study of your word. As we study your word verse by verse, chapter by chapter and book by book, and we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 1. I pray that this message would be exactly what we as a church body need to hear. Again, we always think of all those we love who can't be with us today, either for reasons of health or sickness or underlying conditions, but we thank you that we have been able to be together every Sunday as a body through this entire time. And so, Lord God, we ask now you'd bless our ears to hear, our eyes to see the truth, and our hearts to receive it and to apply it to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's jump right in. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Luke writes, On one occasion, while he, that is, Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. For the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think it's important to mention that some people like the phrase, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Some people feel that the the term the baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't appropriate, yet that's the term Jesus used, so we'll go with that. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that. We're actually going to see it in a few weeks, but we're going to start to prepare our hearts as to what that really meant and what Jesus really means when he tells us we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The very first thing Jesus does is command his disciples to stay, to stay in Jerusalem until they're baptized with the Spirit. Now, sometimes God calls us to go, go into all the earth, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Sometimes God calls us to go, but we can't go until we stay. We can't move until we've been filled. And the very first principle is this. You need to stay where God has called you to stay until he tells you to move. Now, I know, and I was just speaking with Preston, who's visiting from Missouri, that God has called the number of our families over the last year, given all that's happened, to move. And some have moved. We, we saw Tiagas and Catherine and Reuben. They, they moved to North Carolina. And, and we're always sad when, if, when someone moves. But God calls us to stay, and then he calls us to move. And I hope all of you are planning on staying. But if you're called to move, we'll pray for you as well. But we should never move unless God has called us to move. So many of us make the mistake of moving when God has called us to stay. I think that uh, being a pastor in New York City for 17 years, before the last 17 years here, one of the things I got very used to is people moving on. In New York, it was very transient. People were in for school. They were in for, for jobs. They were in because they were young, and then they get married. They want to have a family. They move out of the city. We had a different congregation every two years. And I got used to it, but never really liked it all that much. But then one day, the Lord gave me uh, an impression, I guess, as I was meditating on. He said, you know, the church was always just a couple hundred people in New York. But, but over the period of time that we were there, we had the opportunity to meet and fellowship with and minister to thousands of people. So I guess God knows what he's doing. He sometimes calls us to stay, and then he calls us to move. They were called to stay. They needed to wait. And that's another thing God calls us to do. See, the reason we need to stay is because we're waiting for something. We don't just stay because we got nothing else to do. We're waiting on God to tell us to move. But more importantly, and maybe just as importantly, we need to wait for God to empower us to move. See, that's the problem. If we get out in front of God and we start to move without God's power, useless. A waste of time and space. So, These disciples, these apostles, needed to wait for the gift promised by the Father and spoken about by Jesus, which he refers to in verse 4. You see, they had traveled from Jerusalem. I'll remind you, they traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee because the Lord told them to do so after Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, he said, go to Galilee. They went to Galilee. He met with them there, as many as 500, maybe more. He met with his disciples there. But... They had recently returned from Galilee to Jerusalem and were now eating with Jesus. In the beginning, it was kind of a a freaky thing to suddenly see Jesus. But over the last 40 days, they had become accustomed. They had become accustomed to eating with Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus, being with Jesus. And now they're thinking, what's next? And maybe you're thinking, what's next in my life? But they were told not to leave Jerusalem. Now, let me say it this way. Jerusalem figuratively speaking, is wherever you are when God tells you to wait. Jerusalem is wherever you are when God says stay. 
A lot of people don't like to stay in relationships. They don't like to stay at jobs. They may not like to stay at a particular church. Listen, when God says you stay, you stay. But when God tells you it's time to move, he'll empower you for that move. One of the most difficult decisions, I've only had a handful of these at this level. One of the most difficult decisions was back in, I guess it was 2003. Actually, it took about a year or so to make the decision. So technically 2002 to 2003. To leave the church that I got saved in and to leave the church that I met my wife in and church I got baptized in and ordained in and had served in for so long and so many wonderful memories. To leave that church and I, this morning I got up early, believe it or not, and I was about an hour early and I was thinking a, a lot about those days. I don't know why, maybe just being a little nostalgic, but I was thinking about those days driving, you know, 40 minutes into the city and leading worship and as an assistant pastor ministering there. And, and you know, something that really just struck me that it was hard to leave there. That was my family. But then there came a time where God says it's time to leave. And my wife was against it at first. I remember her being very against it. In fact, I think her exact words were, Satan, get behind me. I'm not joking. Um, we had gone to a, a, a service down in Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge, on our way down to visit my nana uh, one particular Sunday. And we were praying about all this. And I just said, look, Lord, if you're calling us, then you're going to speak to my wife. And uh, Xavier Reese was actually speaking that particular Sunday as a guest speaker. And he talked about God not giving us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And the encouragement of the message was to move when God tells you to move. And we needed to hear that, and it was powerful. And then we submitted to that, and we moved. And it was an interesting couple of years, as we really didn't know what was going to happen. The first 10 months, I, I remember thinking, this will be great. I'll take a little break, you know, just do a weekly Bible study. No reason to have Sundays. So uh, we would go to other churches on Sundays, visit our old church on Sundays. It was great. But 10 months in, the Lord showed us, and Sal, Pastor Sal, Pastor Joe, remember this, and we started services here back in 2004. Why do I say that? Because I couldn't have done that, and I didn't do it. God did it. But I had to start with me staying in one place until God told me to move, and then when I moved, God worked. But if I had moved too quickly or not moved when I was supposed to, I guarantee that the Spirit would not have been in it. So Jerusalem is wherever you are when God tells you to wait. Wherever you are right now, if you don't have clear directions to the next step, just stay where you are and wait for God to move you. We must wait for God's Spirit to empower us for service. Unless we are baptized with the Spirit, we're powerless to serve God. And so the disciples needed to wait. Now, why the Lord made them wait 10 days, I don't know. But that's the way he told them to wait for 10 days. And Jesus would send to them the Holy Spirit as promised by the Father... In a few days. They just needed to wait. John the Baptist had baptized them in water. That was for the repentance of their sins. But John had also promised that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 8. So they knew there was more that they needed in order to serve God. I'm going to repeat that. They knew that they needed, there was more that they needed to serve God. You need more than you can possibly imagine to serve God. But God is all that you can begin to think about or imagine, as the scripture says. So, 
We do know this, that in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 22, which we studied a few months ago, Jesus had breathed on them. That that was earlier. He had breathed on them with the breath of God, the Ruach Elohim, and and they had received the Holy Spirit. So you might be saying, "Well, well, okay, they received the Holy Spirit. What was this about? What's this baptism that they hadn't received yet? Well, I want to remind you that he had filled them with the Holy Spirit that they might be used by God. He told them that. So what are we talking about with this baptism? How does it differ from what they experienced when Jesus breathed on them? Well, you know, the Holy Spirit had been living with them before that moment in John's gospel. The Holy Spirit was working in their hearts to bring them to Jesus, but he hadn't been within them. But then Jesus breathed on them and the Holy Spirit was in them. And they now had God's power living within them to empower them for God's call. But there was still some aspect of God's spiritual power that was lacking and necessary for the next step they needed to take. They still needed the power of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, upon their lives, before they could preach the gospel. And then we read in verses 6 and 7. I'm sorry. um, Yeah, 6 and 7. So when they met together, they asked him, that is Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you or upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's given them the whole plan now, but there's a a, a crucial moment here where they have to wait and stay. Because the next thing that happens is the empowering of God to do the work. Now, every work we're called to do requires God's empowerment. If you've done a work, you still need maybe a new empowering of God's Spirit for the next work. Actually, I'll go so far as to say, every day you wake up to serve God, you really need God's power to serve him that day. So it wouldn't be wrong to say, Lord, may your spirit be upon me today in order to serve you today. It wouldn't be wrong to say that. We'll see when we get to Acts chapter 4. The spirit fills them again. I remember a a speaker at a pastor's conference once said, you know, I've been filled with the spirit. I guess, I think he was quoting D.L. Moody, but he said, "I, I was filled with the spirit But I need to be continually filled with the Spirit because I leak. Funny way of saying it. But I think we understand. We just need God's Spirit. We need more of Him each and every day. Why would you limit yourself to the experience of God you've experienced thus far? Why? You want more of God? Can I hear an amen? You want more of God. They needed more of God. They wanted more of God, but they needed more of God. And Jesus told them that because they had quite a task to accomplish. We're told right here, though, that in the midst of this teaching, in the midst of this encouragement, that they ask a very strange question. Have you ever shared something and then the person kind of responds with, oh, and then they ask a question that's totally non sequitur, it makes no sense, it had nothing to do with what was just said? Look at this again with me. He's told them that John baptized them with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, We're on the Holy Spirit, right? And then it says, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to return, restore 
uh, the kingdom of Israel. Does that have anything to do with the Holy Spirit? Not exactly. And I find it interesting that they were still confused, and maybe some of us are as well. They were still confused about the kingdom age, even after Jesus had spoken to them about it. He had certainly taught on that, but he wasn't teaching them about that now. Have you ever been so fixated on something that it's hard to hear anything else? It's like God tries to talk to you about something, and you're like, yeah, but Lord, what about this? I think that's what's going on. Lord, are you at this time, notice that word, time, going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the dates, the times the Father has set by his own authority. Over your pay grade. I think there's so many things that we want to know or be aware of or study or go after that God just says, that's not your business. We can get into other people's business and we can get into business we got no business being in. So what are you focused on? But what is God telling you to be focused on? A lot of times we get in trouble because we're focused on stuff that God never said to look into. You know, when you think about it, the church in the 60s and into the 70s and even well into the 80s was fairly obsessed with the return of the Lord. And listen, I am too. But there was an aspect of that that was really not productive. It was trying to figure out not if the Lord was coming back, not what would happen when the Lord would come back, but when the Lord would come back. I think you probably have seen already that that is a fruitless endeavor. I've been to prophecy conferences. I've read books on prophecy. I love prophecy. I've taught prophecy. I've taught all of the prophetic books in the Bible. But I still don't know when the Lord is coming back to establish his kingdom. I've read books where people have been so clear in predicting the times. What month? There was a book I read one time said the Lord was coming back in a September. So I think, okay, that narrows it down. A September. So every September I wondered, could this be the September the Lord comes back? Then I, I read books that said, well, the Lord can't come back until this happens. And then that happens, and I think, well, now the Lord can come back. And over the years, I've discovered something. I really believe that God is the kind of God that if any one of us actually figured out, he changed the date. In other words, we're just not going to know. Are you okay with that? There's really no reason to doubt what will happen. That's very clear. The scripture, you know, listen, people say, well, why is there prophecy in the Bible then? So you'll know what is going to happen. Not so you'll know when it's going to happen. That much is clear because Jesus says right here, it's not for you to know these things. It's not within your authority to know them. He said it by his authority. I want to read a scripture for you because most people will go to the book of Revelation and they'll say something like this. Well, Pastor Tim, you, you say that not knowing when the Lord is coming back, it, it, it isn't important and we can't know it. And yet there's whole books of the Bible that talk about these things. And I would say yes. And I would say probably if you're going to look at one chapter in one book, certainly the book would be either Daniel or Revelation. If you were going to use a book to make this point. You look at the book of Revelation, and if you were going to take one chapter out of that book and say what chapter would be the one that would most make the point and talk about what's going to happen when the Lord returns, it would be chapter 19. Check this out. In chapter 19, the angel says to John, the, 
the testimony of Jesus, that is the witness of who he is, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So technically, I suppose that a prophecy conference should just be the testimony of Jesus. Not trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back, or even necessarily what to look for or to preach out of the newspaper, but rather to know what's going to happen when Jesus returns. So I make the distinction when I teach prophecy to talk about what's going to happen, not when, and I don't even want to speculate, because Jesus says in the book of Acts to his disciples who were fairly obsessed with knowing when, it's not for you to know that. So all of those sermons trying to predict when, all those books written, all those movies made, complete and total waste of time. And you know what the worst part is? Someone writes a book about these things, and about five minutes later, you look at it and say, well, that can't happen. So there's better ways to use paper. I think that we need to be focused on what is going to happen when Jesus returns. Now, they were concerned about when. But they were still confused about the kingdom age. Jesus had taught them about his coming kingdom on earth both before and after his resurrection. They had thought that Jesus would establish the kingdom before he was crucified. Obviously. And they now thought, oh, well, Jesus will establish his kingdom as the risen Messiah. Wrong again. He simply told them that dates and times should not be their focus. But you can appreciate why they thought, oh, well, he did say it wasn't going to happen, but now he's a risen Christ. Of course it's going to happen now. So he's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about them being empowered for the work, and they're saying, "Uh, that's great, but when when are you going to set this whole thing up? They're not thinking about their part in it. They're just thinking, when is the Lord going to do this thing so we can just sit at his right and his left and... Enjoy this whole thing. Hey, I I think of that sometimes. When in the world is the Lord going to come back already? I always thought when we got as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord would return. Oh, well, we're far past that. Really. I I couldn't have said that in the 80s, but I can say that now. We're We're well past Sodom and Gomorrah. So, do I know when the Lord is going to return? I don't have a clue. And I never will. Until he returns. And then I know what's going to happen. And I'm very excited about that. So he has to kind of correct them. And Jesus is so loving. We're looking at this and he says, hey, hey, look over here. This is what I want you to be focused on. You're thinking about me doing my thing. I want you to think about you doing my thing. And in order for you to do my thing for you to do, you need the Holy Spirit. And so he sort of dismisses that out of hand. I find that interesting. But clearly that's what they were thinking about. You can understand why. They didn't understand what was going to happen next, but he was going to explain that to them. And then he says in verse 8, after having corrected them that it's not theirs to know these things, but you, but you, now it's about them and it's about us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you or on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, that's what you should be focused on. If you're trying to predict when the Lord's going to return, Jesus would say, hey, look over here. You need to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. You are called to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? Wherever you are when God calls you. And then Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth, wherever God calls you to go. That's a great application. Let's just back up a minute. Jesus promised his disciples they would receive power. Greek word, 
dunamis. We use it in the dynamic or dynamite, power. And they were going to receive this power to be witnesses from the Holy Spirit. They were going to do their own work in their own power. They were going to do God's work in God's power. And you can tell a work of the flesh right away. Man's work, it pales in comparison to God's work. And I have seen, and I have seen some wonderful, loving, talented, exceptionally great people try to do a work for God and fail miserably. I have seen it. I've also seen some people who don't know what they're doing, who get up every day and say, God, why are you using me? I'm in this category. And, and, and God uses them. So what's the difference? It's the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, doing the work in and through them. They would receive gifts. You know, that word is charisma. Gifts. It's the graces of God in our life. Grace, by the way, grace means it's not you. Amen? Amen. A gift means you didn't pay for it. If I drive in here with, uh, let's say, I'm going to use an example, a crazy example, a Rolls Royce. Ain't going to happen. And someone says, whoo, pastoring must be pretty lucrative. I said, no, no, it was a gift. It was a gift? Somebody gave you a Rolls Royce? Yeah, it was a gift. You'd say, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, but you know what? I don't want a Rolls Royce. I want the gifts of the Spirit. And it's the same. I can't afford that car. I wouldn't afford that car. I I can't make these things happen in my life. I can only open my heart up and receive God's goodness. And it's so much better than a stupid car. I love that everything God does in and through my life, I can't take credit for. It's the grace, the graces, the charisma of God. His grace, his power. You know, the Holy Spirit as I, I said, had been with them. We see that word used, it's para in the Greek. It means with, Holy Spirit's working to convict you. Holy Spirit is with us all. He's working with us to bring us to God. They had experienced that, and they came to God. And then the Holy Spirit was in them. We talked about that from John's gospel. He breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in them, and, and the next thing they needed was that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. They had not yet experienced this. This would be something new, and it would be continual. It wouldn't cease. It was the beginning of a lifestyle of asking God to fill them each and every day. But they would become witnesses. I want you to look in your Bibles there in verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Notice, my witnesses testifying to him means you're, you're his witness. Not a witness to yourself or your own ministry or your own desires. His witness, and that word, by the way, is martyrs. Martyrs. And why do they call witnesses martyrs? Because they often gave their life in witnessing for Christ. You don't have to give your life to be a witness, but many of the early church witnesses were martyrs, as we call martyrs. And so they use that same word. And they were witnesses of the truth of the gospel to the entire world. That's what they were called to do. Sitting around trying to figure out when the Lord would return. No, that wasn't their job. That wasn't what the church was called to do. And again, I I think we were guilty. The evangelical movement, I I can speak for myself, that in the 70s and then into the 80s, I wasn't a Christian in the 70s, but certainly in the 80s, uh, we were a little too fixated on when the Lord would return. I think most of us had figured out he was coming in 1988. Pastor Joe, do you remember that? Even some, even some, like, really orthodox people had made a case for 1988. 
It's a long time ago. I got married in 88. So, you know, I know, I know that it wasn't 1988. And then a few people just couldn't let go of the idea. And then they said, oh, it's 89. We were off by a year. And they only continued to prove their foolishness. And here we are. Interesting, not too, too many people are spending a whole lot of time trying to tell you when the Lord's going to return. They've kind of learned their lesson, maybe. Maybe some people are still doing that. But I'm telling you that the Lord is going to return. I just don't know when. And at the moment, I'm not that concerned because you know what? I got a job to do, and so do you. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to be empowered by God to do the work he's called us to do. They would be witnesses to the truth of the gospel throughout the world. And they would begin in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And they would ultimately reach the entire known world. Okay, that's what they're being told. I think you'll find this interesting that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the outline for the entire book of Acts. I didn't even realize this. I kind of saw it, but I didn't see it as clearly until recently when I was reviewing my notes in the book of Acts, and I said, wow, I never really noticed it that clearly before that Acts chapter 1-8 is the table of contents for the book of Acts. Another theme of the book of Acts would be witnesses, but we, I said the church of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're supposed to be, witnesses, but it's all about the witnesses of the gospel, and in chapters 1 through chapter 11, verse 18, you have the ministry in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. In chapter 11, verse 19, through the rest of the book, chapter 28, verse 31, they ultimately reach the entire known world. So in Acts chapter 1a, Jesus is saying, and I'm going to read it again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you or upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. You might say like Jerusalem would be, let's say, northern Jersey. Okay, for us. Judea and Samaria might be upstate New York, Pennsylvania, central Jersey, New York City, okay? And the uttermost parts of the earth are everywhere else. You know, red states where you can live in freedom. Had to get that in there. Pray for me. So here's the thing. There is a work for each of us to do. Now here's the thing. Your uttermost is different than mine. But our Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem are all the same. But there comes a point where we've reached out around our parameters here and, and perimeter, and, and we, we start to say, well, well, where am I going next? And then, thank God, God will choose Joe Nigro to go to India, not me. I'm teasing with Joe, Pastor Joe, because he knows. I'm called to Central America. We haven't been able to do any missions trips this last year for obvious reasons. And I really miss it, you know. We had some issues in our family for a while there and, you know, some sick family members. And so it would have been difficult to go. And then COVID hit. And uh, for a while there, uh, I was going with Joe at least once a year, sometimes twice a year to Guatemala and to Cuba and uh, El Salvador. And I really miss it. I'm looking forward for us to be able to get back on the mission field. That's my uttermost parts of the earth. The Lord called me to learn Spanish. Took several years to do that, but I really know that that's where God has called me to be. My wife and I, we, we did uh, a trip, I guess, 2017 and 2015 were our last two trips to Cuba. And uh, for a while, we were doing a lot of trips to Central America. Uh, and then, so we started going to Cuba. I had been there once with Joe back in 2004. 
and it was a life-transforming trip. And I guess, you know, I don't know why I'm mentioning this today, except it's kind of contextual, but Pastor Joe and I have been talking about, we're hoping that the doors will begin to open up and we can start to do trips again. And let me tell you, if you've never been on a missions trip with Straight Path Ministries, if you've never had an opportunity to go, again, in the Spirit's power, as God tells you to go, you need to go. Pray about that now so that when the doors open up, you can reach out to your uttermost parts of the earth. But listen, you don't do the uttermost until you've done the inmost. Until you've stayed in the Lord's presence and received his anointing and his power and been, been transformed in a way where you're transforming the people in your Jerusalem and your Judea and your Samaria. But listen, you get to the end of your Samaria pretty quickly and then you say, what next, Lord? And then the Lord says, India, Cuba, Russia, El Salvador. That's how you know. Don't be asking, Lord, will you have me go to China? But you haven't been across the street. He may call you to go to China eventually. But you and I, we need to stay until God tells us to move. But when he tells us to go, we need to go. Are you with me? So I love that outline because it really breaks down nicely. So really, uh, for the next few months... Uh, We're going to be going through Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 18, and we're going to be talking about uh, witnesses in Jerusalem and then the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and then after that, the ends of the earth. And Paul's ends of the earth was in the direction west towards Rome, and Thomas's, his uh, direction was to India. It It was east, and others went south to Egypt. And that's the the thing. You and I, we need to figure out where God is calling us to go when it comes to the uttermost parts of the earth, or the utmost parts of the earth, okay? So the ends of the earth. Now, that's a great outline. And remember what I said. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if you're hung up on prophecy and it's not about Jesus and more about when things happen, then make that course correction. And if you're not asking the Lord, Lord, here am I, send me. And instead you're asking, Lord, is it going to happen in September? You need a course correction. Let's get back to why God has us here at all. And why he hasn't returned yet, because we have a job to do, one that he wants to empower us for and send us on and work in and through our lives to accomplish. Amen? Okay, now something really cool happens. Because... If Jesus had stayed, let me ask you a question. If he didn't ascend into heaven, how much work do you think the apostles would have gotten done? If Jesus was here right now, visibly, physically, no one would go to lunch. Imagine that. You wouldn't go to work tomorrow morning. I guarantee you wouldn't leave. Why? Because you'd be like, Jesus is here. Well, what about your neighbors? I don't care. Jesus is here. Now, Jesus is here. Amen? But if Jesus had stayed with them, they would have hung around eating, fellowshipping, laughing, joking, having a great time, and no one would have gotten saved. You know it. You know it. But you know what's sad? A lot of Christians are kind of stuck there. Jesus is here. We're not going anywhere. Yeah, Jesus is there, too. And he wants you to bring him to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. Your families first. Your jobs, your schools, your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria. Absolutely. 
But when I say that, it's exciting because Jesus then left them. Now, Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us, but he physically, visibly left them and ascended into heaven. And I can only imagine that they were sitting around in a circle looking at each other and like, what now? Who's going to make bread for us? What are we going to do? We, we, never, we were only without Jesus for just a couple days, and then he came back, and we thought, well, for the last 40 days, this is the way it's going to be now. He's going to set up the kingdom? I mean, what now? And maybe you're asking the question, what now? Giving my life to Jesus, what now? Well, the first thing Jesus had to do is leave them so he could send the Holy Spirit so that they could go and reach the world for him. Don't get too comfortable, brothers and sisters. Don't ever allow yourself to be so comfortable that your lead of the Spirit turns into lead in your pants. Keeping you in that pew, keeping you from going to where God has called you to be. Well, here's what we read. Verses 9 and 11 says that after he said this, notice he just told them this. Just told them, this is going to be your life. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Bye-bye. That's pretty amazing because I would have said, hmm, if anything, I would have expected Jesus to hang around. If not set up his kingdom, at least help us to set up his kingdom. But he said he had to leave so that he could send the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if there's a rule where only one member of the Trinity can be on earth at a time. I don't think that's it. I think he just knew that he, he was called where God the Father had called him to be at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us. And the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, who is one with Jesus, they're both God, they're all God, that he would come and the experience of the Holy Spirit was necessary now so that they could take their experience and relationship with Jesus to the next level. And we read that after this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky. Now, that, that's really interesting to me. They're looking intently up into the sky. Have you ever seen a tourist in New York City? This is a perfect description of a tourist. You can know the tourists immediately in New York City because they're always looking up. Well, you know, the thing is, they're sitting there looking. I don't know, what were they thinking? He said he was coming in the clouds. Maybe he's coming back. They were looking intently up into the sky as, as he was going. And when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. I love this. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. Can I hear an amen? I don't know when, but I know he's coming back. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That tells me everything I need to know about the Lord's return. I really don't need to know anything else. What? Yeah, no, I really don't. That's kind of sufficient. He's coming back. Well, how will we know? If they saw him go, we'll see him return. Every eye will see him. Even those that pierced him, we're told. So that's what we're looking to happen, but we're not going to sit around looking up in the sky. You know, like when we were kids, we'd lay on the lawn and look up and try to, hey, that cloud looks like, uh, you know, so-and-so. Uh, that cloud looks like uh, a horse. You know, that's fun, but that's not what God has called us to do, sit around contemplating clouds. No, he's called us to, if you will, occupy until he comes. 
Now, he led his disciples, Luke tells us in Luke 24, he led his disciples to the vicinity of Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed them. That's not recorded in Acts, but it was recorded by Luke in his gospel. And we're told here, he was taken up before his disciples and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, what that means exactly, I don't know. Have you ever seen a balloon with helium in it? Just slowly go up until you can't see it anymore. I don't think that's what happened. I don't. Whatever happened here was an incredible supernatural experience. And I don't think it was as simple as waiting to say, I can't see him anymore. No, there he is. He's really small now. I can see his robe. No, I don't think that was it. Not at all. In fact, what the scripture tells me about clouds is this. The clouds seem to appear whenever heaven and earth intersect. Clouds appear whenever heaven and earth intersect. Whenever there's, if I can be so sci-fi, a portal between these two dimensions. Clouds appear. Why? I don't know. But they do. When God appeared to Abram, when he made his covenant in Genesis 15, there was a smoking fire pot or a blazing torch. Does that sound familiar? The Shekinah glory of God? How about the cloud that covered Moses on Mount Sinai? How about the pillar of cloud and fire that was God's presence over the ark in the wilderness and then over the temple? How about the Shekinah glory of God that was witnessed by the prophets, talked about by Ezekiel? How about the bright cloud that enveloped Peter, James, and John during the transfiguration? What do all these things have in common? Heaven and earth intersected. There was a moment where things in heaven were visible to those on earth, and there's this cloud, and I think when we see it saying the cloud hid them from their sight, he was taken up. I think it was a pillar of cloud and fire. I think that the Shekinah, glory of God, appeared, and Jesus moved from this dimension directly into heaven to be at the right hand of the throne of God, where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf, and where he'll sit until the Father makes the enemies of our Lord a footstool for his feet, according to Psalm 2. So I don't expect to see Jesus until he returns in the way he left. I don't. Now, it's interesting because we'll see in a few weeks that Stephen had a vision or saw Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. So I think he probably was given the vision to see it when he was being martyred. Was Stephen a witness? Yes, he was. Very powerful witness. And when it was his time to to follow Jesus into heaven, he saw Jesus, and it says he was standing to receive him. So if you do see Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God, you're probably not coming back until he returns. So that's what we do know that Jesus was taken up into heaven. He sat at the right hand of the uh, the throne of God in, in heaven, God the Father. And then these two angels appear before Jesus' disciples or beside them as he was ascending into heaven in this cloud. Now these men or angels were most likely the same two that were dressed in white and present at the empty tomb talked about by Luke and John. These angels testified to these disciples that Jesus would return to earth in the same exact way that he left. Now, a couple of facts. Remember, we're not even going to try to determine when. But this we do know. We know what, we know how, and we even know where. So if you're going to do a prophecy conference and it's all about how the Lord returns, if it's all about where the Lord's going to return, 
And what's going to happen when he returns? I'm all in. But if you start to try to tell me when, I'm out. He ascended in a cloud, and he will come again in a cloud. That's how. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. And according to Zechariah 14, 14, he will return to the Mount of Olives. That's very helpful. We know how, and we know where. I don't suggest you move there and just sit there and wait, but it's good to know all of these facts, right? And we also know he ascended into heaven visibly, and he will return to earth visibly, and every eye will see him, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. So indeed, we actually know quite a bit. And if you add to that the rest of the book of Revelation and Daniel and other prophets, you'll know exactly what's going to happen when he returns. You just won't know when he returns, or when he will return. You won't know. Now, Jesus' disciples, were told by Luke, responded in an interesting way. That's the end of our text today in the book of Acts. But Luke tells us in Luke 24, we looked at it last week, that after this, when Jesus disappeared from their sight, here's what they did. They worshipped him. Amen? They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? That's where Jesus told them to wait. So they worshipped him and they did his will. Can you say that with me? They worshipped him and they did his will. You wonder what your vision is, what you're supposed to do. What, what should your vision statement be? Worship him and do his will. Very simple, actually. That's what they did. And, and by the way, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, we're told. And then the disciples did something else. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now, we do have to close the doors at a certain point, and another service will start, and you will need to leave. But you can stay in the presence of the Lord, continually praising him forever. Amen? Starting now. You don't have to wait for eternity. I suggest you develop an attitude of continually praising God. And by the way, you're the temple of the Spirit. So you don't need to go to a temple. But they went to the temple. Why why were they at the temple in Jerusalem? They're waiting for God to send to them the Holy Spirit. That's what he told them to do. So again, praising God, doing his will. That's what they were doing. And then we know what happens. We'll get to this as we study through the book of Acts. Then the disciples fulfilled his great commission after they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. So they got to hang out for a couple of days, and God is going to fill them in such a wonderful way. They're going to be empowered for service, and then they're going to go. So, what's next for us? Well, we're waiting for God to send us, but once God has sent us, we need to go. They went out and preached everywhere after they were baptized with the Spirit. If you've been baptized with the Spirit, you should be doing that exact thing as a witness in your Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and eventually the ends of the earth. And the Lord worked with them, and he confirmed his word with supernatural signs so that people would listen to what they had to say. This is what Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 20 tells us. So if I'm going to apply this to my life, and even to our church today, it's very simple. It's not about when the Lord returns. It's about that he will return. We know a lot of particulars, but we know this. Those that reject Christ when the Lord returns will be judged. They'll be found wanting. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So your job, my job, our job is, very simply, to wait on the Lord, receive his empowerment, and then to go first to Jerusalem, 
then Judea and Samaria, and ultimately the ends of the earth, witnessing to the truth of the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Brothers and sisters, we are called to go and make disciples of all men and women, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything he commanded us. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we know our mission, we know our call. Now we wait on you to fill us and empower us for whatever that call is. And maybe, perhaps for most of us, our Jerusalem is our families, our children, maybe our parents, our siblings, our co-workers, our classmates. But Lord, as you send us beyond our borders and we begin to reach those around us and ultimately open up doors of opportunity for us to go and reach those even in the ends of the earth, Lord, as we do that and as you open up those doors again, we pray that we would be so plugged in, that we would be so so attuned to what your will is, that we would wait as long as we need to wait and go as soon as we need to go. We ask for you now to... Fill us with your Holy Spirit in your time for the work that you've called us to do. They had to wait. I don't know that we need to wait. You told us that you'll give the Holy Spirit to all those that ask. But the empowerment for the specific work awaits your determination. So we simply open up our hearts, ask for all of the Holy Spirit that you decide and desire to to pour out upon us. We pray that you would fill us, baptize us with your Holy Spirit. We may have been Christians for decades, but Lord, we need your Holy Spirit afresh and anew today. That we might be filled and empowered to do your will, to be your witnesses where you've called us to go. We ask that you do that work, but we also ask for any heart that's here today that doesn't know you. Forget about the Holy Spirit for just a minute. They don't know you. Lord, they don't know that you came and died on a cross for their sins. They don't understand, perhaps, that you rose again on the third day and that you're coming again, the judge of the living and the dead. We've talked about those things, but perhaps those who are hearing this for the first time or have never really submitted their hearts to it need to make that decision. And last week we studied how we preach the gospel that there might be repentance and forgiveness of sins. So I pray right now for any heart that has not been surrendered to you, either listening online or here with us this morning, that you'd make it abundantly clear that before they can wait on you, before they can go, they need to give their hearts to you. And all they need to do is simply cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I ask for you to reveal that I am a sinner. Lord, I ask you to reveal that, that I might confess my sins and repent of those sins, to change my mind about my lifestyle and my life, and to cry out to you that you might fill me not only with your spirit, but with your love and save me from my sins. That you might give me that resurrection power that you displayed on that first resurrection Sunday. And that then you would empower me with your spirit to serve you, to love you, to have a relationship with you. For no one calls you Lord but by the spirit. And then empower me for service. But it starts with a relationship with you. I pray that the no heart here today would leave not knowing they have an opportunity right now to give their hearts to you. And I pray every heart would as we submit all of our hearts to you, Lord. And pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.